Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. If you're listening to this podcast, you're interested in civil conversation. You'll get more of it in After the Fact, a podcast from the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trusts. PewTrusts.org backslash after the fact. Welcome to the Arthur Brooks Show. I'm Arthur Brooks. I'm president of the American Enterprise Institute, and this is a show I'm making with the Vox Media Podcast Network. In this series, we're looking at the art of disagreement. Before we go on to talk about today's episode, I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for emailing to share your stories and experiences with us. And thanks for rating the show and reviewing the podcast. A couple of years ago, I was at Harvard University giving a lecture. It was a lecture about polarization, about what's driving us apart in this country. And I said something that had been kind of on my mind, which was, I don't think that we have an anger problem in America. I think that we have a contempt problem. Contempt is defined as the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another human being. And it seemed to me that that was really what we were in a habit of expressing in politics. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but my friends at Harvard were making a video of the lecture, and what they intended to do was to take a 60-second little clip and put it up on the Facebook page of the Harvard Kennedy School where I was giving the talk. Just a little thing, just a minute long. Well, the part where I talked about contempt being the problem in America, that turned out to be the 60-second chunk that they put on their Facebook page. That video was shared by people who watched it and shared some more and then shared a few more times. And pretty soon there were 12 million views. That's a lot of views for something about political discourse in America. And I thought to myself, huh, I think we're onto something here. I think people recognize that as really being the problem. And so I thought a little bit deeper, who is the, the world's leading expert on contempt? I remembered, it's a guy named John Gottman. He's a social psychologist at the University of Washington, and he does work on marital reconciliation. He's an expert in bringing couples back together. He's responsible for probably saving thousands of marriages in his laboratory that he runs with his wife, Julie. What he's been saying for years is that contempt is what kills marriages. 
And if we want to have happier marriages, if we want to be happier people because we have more love in our lives, we have to get out of the habit of expressing contempt to each other. I thought, aha, I got to talk to John Gottman. He's not a political guy. He doesn't do work on political discourse, but I bet maybe he can say something about how we can come back together. But as a nation, that's what this entire episode is about. Well, I'm thrilled now to welcome John Gottman to the program. John Gottman is Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of Washington in Seattle, and he's well known to people who have followed work on on marital reconciliation. He's one of the world's leading experts on this particular topic. He's the co-founder of the Gottman Institute, along with his wife, Julie, who's also a psychologist. And he's written over 200 published academic articles and more than 40 books on this subject. And, and I've written a lot about John Gottman's work as well. And I have to say, he's kind of an intellectual hero of mine. But here's the weird thing. I've been writing about John Gottman and admiring John Gottman. And I've never met John Gottman. So I get to talk to John <laughs> Gottman for the very first time today. Hi, John. Hi, Arthur. Great to meet you. <laughs> Another thing that we have in common is that John, uh, I think, John, you spent your whole career or almost your whole career at the University of Washington in Seattle, right? Right. And uh, Seattle, Washington is my hometown. It's the university where my father taught uh, at the very end of his own career. And so we have that in common. And what a thrill it is to be able to talk to you after admiring your work for so long. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. You have done incredibly prominent work on on how couples can be happy and stay married. And and you talk an awful lot about what healthy relationships look like and don't look like. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about healthy and unhealthy relationships and what we can learn from that and the way that we deal with each other in politics and just in general in big public policy debates in America. What inspired you to get into psychology and to do the work that you do today? Well, I really started off as a mathematician. I went to MIT, and my roommate, you get assigned randomly in your first year, was studying psychology, and I found his books a lot more interesting than my books. So, (laughs) you know, I kind of made a switch after a master's degree at MIT in math and went to the University of Wisconsin the following year and uh, got a PhD in in clinical psychology. So it was really kind of an accident that... uh, at MIT, I sort of took a left turn, you know, or a right turn, <laughs> and went from mathematics to, to psychology. Yeah, no kidding. And, and so what year did you go to the University of Washington? 1986 was when I moved here, and that's where I met my wife, Julie, in Seattle. Were you doing work uh, when you got to the University of Washington already? Were you doing work on the dynamics of healthy relationships? Yes, I was. So this has been your life. Your life's work is how to get people. Yeah, to, it really has been. Yeah, getting people to stay in love. You're kind of the love doctor, aren't you? Well, in a way, I mean, I started off completely incompetent in my relationships with women. I went from one disaster to another, and so did my best friend Bob Levinson, who was best man at our wedding. And Bob and I both were moving from disaster to disaster. And so two completely clueless guys started doing this research together, you know, about 46 years ago. And Bob said, well, John, you can either have a relationship or study relationships, and we're studying them. So (laughs) it took us a while to learn from the masters of relationships. And Bob uh, is happily married now. He married for the first time at age 67, about three summers ago. 
Julie and I have been married 30, 31 years and uh, very happily. And so we kind of learned from our research how to have a good relationship. Yeah, I was going to, you know, I wasn't going to ask, but since you brought it up, it's kind of a lot of pressure about, you know, happiness in your own marriage that you're the world's leading expert on happy marriages, right? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, one of the things that we do in all of our workshops is we go through an argument that Julie and I had recently and show people that when you're in a relationship, all of us are in the same soup. You know, we all we all struggle with the same kinds of problems, and we're no different from anybody else, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are people, I suppose, except that some people like you have particular expertise, and that's what we really want to dig into today. So you you actually work side by side with Julie, and and together you founded the Gottman Institute. Tell me about that. Yes. Well, you know, um, I Bob Levinson and I were doing this basic research for about twenty five years predicting the future of relationships. We got pretty good at that. We could tell, you know, within 15 minutes with over 90% accuracy what, what the future of a relationship would, would be. And Julie was really a talented clinician helping people. And so, you know, when we combined efforts, you know, it was really about kind of listening to a talented clinician and figuring out how this basic research could go about helping people. And so we kept doing research on it. And I've kept track of my hypotheses over time and discovered that I'm wrong 60% of the time. And if I didn't do the research, I would think I was right 100% of the time. (laughs) And it turns out I'm mostly wrong. And so we use data to really inform us. So for the past 22 years, Julie and I have been trying to see, can we help prevent relationship disaster? And can we turn a really troubled relationship into a master relationship? And the answer is we can. So you're a social psychologist, and Julie's a clinical psychologist, right? Yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist, too. It's just that I'm not as smart as my wife is. Yeah, that's good. And it's good to recognize that as well. It's probably one of the secrets to a happy marriage, right? She's mostly right, and it really makes me angry. (laughs) (laughs) She just really is much more insightful and intelligent than I am. (laughs) So, but it sounds to me like the the way that the team works is that you're through your research, you you have been able to isolate, identify problems, and she's been able to apply solutions to those problems. Right? Is that the? That's right. And I've actually gone back to apply mathematics to to the whole question of what makes relationships work. So, you know, I've come full circle and now I'm a mathematician again, but looking at relationships mathematically. I know you've spent time with literally thousands of couples and you've seen all different kinds of relationships. And the interesting thing, of course, for those of us who are behavioral social scientists, you and me and and, and Julie, is you're looking for patterns. So here's my question. What is the the biggest lesson that you've learned about about romantic relationships? If you can distill it, what's the big thing that you see over and over and over again? Well, I'll tell you, I think what it is, and you know, initially when I started talking to the press about my research, the press would always say, you know, what's the one thing that you can distill from this? And I had a lot of trouble answering that question, but I gave it a lot of thought. And here's my answer. In great relationships, people seem to have a motto in which what they're saying to their partner is, baby, when you're upset, the world stops and I listen. And in relationships that are ailing, the motto is the opposite. They're dismissing their partner's 
concerns and their partner's needs. They're saying, you know, when you're upset, go away. <laughs> Come to me when you're happy and let's have fun together. But when you're upset, talk to your talk to somebody else about it. I'm not I'm up to here with your negativity. And I think that's the big thing. That willingness to listen to negativity is what makes a relationship work. What's the surest sign of that you've been able to see of Besides that, of a healthy relationship between couples, what's sort of the tip-off when you see either of the, the surest sign of an unhealthy relationship or the surest sign of a healthy relationship? What is it that, yeah. you, that you see when you're talking to couples immediately that tips you off? Arthur, this kind of blew my mind because, you know, I thought in a great relationship there would be as much negativity as positivity and that they'd balance. But what I found was that in a great relationship, there's five times as much positivity as negativity, even when they're disagreeing in conflict. So more humor, more affection, more understanding. And in an ailing relationship, people are kind of pointing their finger at their partner and saying, you know, I've been watching you. As far as I can tell, I'm pretty much perfect, but you are defective. And they're criticizing their partner. They're being contemptuous toward their partner. They're being defensive when, when their partner talks about what they need, and they're withdrawing emotionally from the interaction eventually. So we call those the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Criticism is the first one. Contempt is the second. Defensiveness is the third. And stonewalling, where you really move away emotionally from your partner, and you're kind of like a stone wall that's not accepting any influence from your partner. And those four things allow us to predict the future of a relationship with 88% accuracy, just those four things. When you have a contract with your partner that you're going to give, but only if you get, then you're on the track to divorce. Wow. We're going to come back to this in a second, but I want to pick up on one word that you talked about, one word that you uttered that is I think really profound in modern American society today, transcending just the relationship world that, that you live in and, and moving more into the world that I live in. And that word is contempt. I'm doing a lot of research right now on what I call the culture of contempt. And I've read your work and, and you talk about this a lot. You talk about how, you know, one of the things you're looking for when a relationship is on the rocks is that that people are sarcastic with each other, they mock each other, they roll their eyes, which is the that's right. You know, the sign of contempt. Um, belittling, belittling your partner is just the opposite of respect, and it is really sulfuric acid for love. And what we've discovered is that it degrades health as well. And the Glazers at Ohio State University have actually discovered the dynamics through which the immune system is compromised by contempt. And they take small bits of blood from couples as they're talking to each other. And if you have the four horsemen there, then they've shown that you get a wide spectrum degradation of the immune system because people are secreting our two stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. And they can predict from the amount of cortisol and adrenaline that a newlywed couple is secreting while they talk about an area of disagreement. Ten years later, whether the couple will divorce or not. But the interesting thing is, when you look at the white blood cells, we look at T cells and B cells and natural killer cells, 
all of those cells of the immune system are compromised. So we know the mechanism through which contempt makes people sick. Wow. So help me out here for a second, John. I've been married for a long time, and I married a girl from Spain. And in Spain, they fight like cats and dogs. I mean, it's just... It's just relentless. Everybody's yelling all the time. And for me, you know, I'm a kid from Seattle, and so I'm not used to this. I, I, ne- I literally never heard my parents yell at each other, not even once. And so the first right. five years of my marriage, I, th- I felt like it was daggers drawn. It was just, it, and I, and I, felt, I felt put upon and beat up all the time. But I have to say that the last, you know, 20 or 25 years have been pretty good. I've gotten used to it. I've gotten used to kind of arguing every day. Is there something wrong with my marriage, or is anger different than contempt? Anger is so different from contempt because uh, t- contempt is belittling and disrespectful. And anger is anger's a good thing. Anger engages us. And part of what you know, I tell audiences the second day of our workshop when we talk about conflict is that we need to be more Italian. And that goes for Spanish too, that these, these are cultures where they don't think anger is a bad thing. They, don't, they think it's just about talking about what's unfair in the relationship. And there's a good reason to be angry sometimes at your partner. And if you do it in a respectful way, it can be very constructive. And so, again, this is the attitude of saying, okay, baby, you know, you're angry with me. You know, I'm listening. I'm taking notes. And if you have that attitude, then the expression of emotion, any emotion, is constructive because it leads to mutual understanding. You know, the, uh, the great 19th century philosopher, Arthur Schopenhauer, he defined contempt as the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. It's, the, it's as cold as it gets, and, and anger is, is warm, maybe hot, right? Does it work on different psychological channels? Is there even a, a different physiological response? We don't really know about the physiology of contempt, but we do know that being contemptuous also compromises the immune system of the contemptuous person. So it is really harmful to both people because it is icy, you're right. It distances us from the other person and makes us think they're less than human. They're not not worthy. And so we, we can't empathize with their pain. People have studied the physiology of genocide. And when we see somebody in pain, the part of our brain that is right between our eyes, the medial prefrontal cortex, lights up when we see somebody else in pain. But when it's somebody who's different from us, different political party, different racial group, different ethnic group, it doesn't light up as much. And so we have less empathy for the pain of other people. And contempt makes us Disgust also makes us less empathetic toward our fellow humans. We're going to take a quick break so I can tell you about our sponsor, but we'll be right back with more of John Gottman. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? 
Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun, but it's the experiences that people love the most about traveling. When you get back home, that t-shirt might fade and that snow globe might break, but it's those once-in-a-lifetime memories that will last. Viator is a website and app where you can book travel experiences like architectural sightseeing, snorkeling excursions, sunset cruises, and so much more. With Viator, you can reserve everything from simple tours to thrilling adventures with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. Whether you're a foodie, a history buff, or an adrenaline junkie, there's something for everyone. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you can have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Let's go back now to my conversation with John Gottman. So, John, in your laboratory, you've brought hundreds, probably thousands of couples back from the brink of separation or divorce. Now let's imagine that you started a new laboratory. Let's call it the Gottman Center for Political Reconciliation. And you're going to bring in people with their loved ones that they just don't get along because some of them are Republicans or some of them, some of them are Democrats. And the Republicans think the Democrats are just bad news and vice versa. Sit them down. What do you tell them? You know, we have an approach to this uh, that we use with couples that we call the dreams within conflict approach. And the dreams within conflict approach really gets at what is the meaning of each person's position? Not just what is their position, but what does their position mean to them? What is the story that goes with their position? What is the hope and the dream behind their position? Why is it so important? What are all the emotions they have around it? So we have six questions that couples ask their partner about an irreconcilable conflict where they're just really at loggerheads and they can't compromise. And the first question is, do you have any ethics and values that are part of your position on this issue? And you listen. And the second question is, is there a story behind this? Does this relate to your history or your culture or your values or the story of your family or the story of your own life? Tell me that story if there is. And then eventually we get to, what is your ideal dream here? What are you hoping for? And when you listen to these dreams behind each person's position, suddenly you rise to a higher level, an existential level, a level of meaning. And we creatures, we humans, are really meaning makers. We're storytellers. And if you can understand what's behind this opposite position, you'll find that it's concepts like freedom, concepts like empowerment, concepts like respect and caring and independence and strength. 
and moral values, and that you can find a common ground then when you get behind the surface level and go deeper into the meaning of each person's position. And that's what I would do. I would use our dreams within conflict approach toward bringing these people together. So basically, when people are arguing with with each other about politics and policy, they're talking about sort of the what of politics, and you want them to dig into the why of the values behind the political positions that you hold. And in so doing, almost inevitably, you're going to find that they agree on more than they thought, right? Right, right. That's right. Yeah. And neither one of them, you know, has tails and horns. (laughs) There really are no devils here. You know, there really are only the angels of our better nature. And that's what we need to tap into. The things that you're telling me, it always gets back to talking to other people and listening to other people and doing so with an open heart and an open mind, right? Right. That's it. That open heart is really the key thing. Because, you know, people who have a closed mind and a closed heart are really in, it's as if they were in prison. They can't get outside the bars of their own point of view and see the world from somebody else's point of view. They're trapped, they're prisoners. And, you know, there's, there's an old Jewish song which goes, I called to God from within inside my prison cell and God answered me with the vastness of his space. And that's a very powerful song because it really says that you know, when you stay in your point of view, when you're only watching Fox or you're only watching MSNBC, you're imprisoning yourself. You've got to break those bars and be able to see past your own perceptions and realize there is no immaculate perception. We've learned a lot here, and I think that people listening are going to have better relationships as a result, and that's great. But I want to shift it a little bit now. I want to take what you've learned and see what we can apply to what's wrong in our country. You know, when when I've read your work, your magisterial work on how to put together a relationship that's on the rocks or how to build one from scratch that's going to be good, you're giving a bunch of rules on on what couples should do and what they should avoid. And And one of the things that really strikes me is that when you talk about a relationship that's falling apart and you talk about this, you know, this contempt, the four horsemen, but contempt in particular, I can't help but have it strike me as a public policy guy, a guy running a think tank in Washington, D.C., that this is kind of what's wrong with our political discourse. I feel that leaders are treating others with contempt. When I watched the presidential debates in 2016, I saw Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton treat each other with just the utmost contempt. When I look at social media today, where people are having conversations about politics and public policy, and and they disagree with others, they treat each other either that they know or that that, that they've never met before with, with complete contempt. Has this occurred to you too? Absolutely. You know, I I love this country. You know, I'm really proud to be an American. And one thing I love about this country is that people really get along. They may not like each other, but they respect each other. They, They can work together and tolerate each other and be enriched by one another. So I grew up in New York and, you know, and I learned a lot from living in an Irish neighborhood, from living in an Italian neighborhood, from getting along with and understanding the cultures in the United States. We really are a country that believes in freedom and believes in respect, mutual respect, 
And I completely agree with you, Arthur. I think that there's been a denigration of respect in the dialogue in this country. It's always us versus them. And that deludes us into thinking we're better than our partner. And we see you know, Republicans thinking they're better than Democrats, Democrats thinking they're better than Republicans, people from the coast thinking they're better than people inland. And it goes on and on, rural versus city. And I think it's very harmful. This us versus them is what gets our medial prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain between our eyes, to not respond with understanding and compassion. You're a, a lifelong academic. And when you look around at, at you know, how, how identity politics is, is working in academia, as a, as a social and clinical psychologist, does it trouble you because it's, it's, we're institutionalizing the differences between us and the way that we talk? Yes, it really does trouble me. I, you know, I think it's, I, I think the us versus them thing is really so damaging, you know, because, you know, we think that whatever tribe we represent is better than anybody else. And yet, look at our religious traditions. The Bible tells us that it's the stranger who could be an angel, who could be an emissary of God. The stranger may be the one who we need to turn to, the homeless man, you know, the homeless woman, you know, the person who is really not like us. We need to open our dining rooms to those people and welcome them in. And, you know, we do that at Passover. We open the door and say, you know, let all who are hungry come and join us and eat with us. And that's our tradition. That's who we are. We're not the kind of people, Americans, who say, get out because you're hungry. Get out because you don't look like us. You know, we're people who open our doors and say, come in, our table has room for one more. And my mother always used to say, I can always add some water to the soup. And, <laughs> and it goes a little further. That's the kind of people we are. That's who America is. It's really great. I mean, it, you're, you're, you're paraphrasing, of course, uh, the 21st verse of the 22nd chapter of Exodus, I think. Do not oppress a stranger, for remember that you two were a stranger in the land of Egypt. These are words to live by in, in every way that we possibly could. In, in your own work, the most deleterious thing that you can do is to treat your partner like a stranger. But if we want to bring the country together, if we want to bring the world together, we have to realize that these are, these are not just concepts for a healthy romantic relationship. This is, these are the concepts of solidarity and global brotherhood, right? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, I have a mathematician working with me. Her name is Marissa Preciado, and she is from Mexico City. And she's, she's a Mexican immigrant into the United States. She's a citizen, and she solved a mathematical problem that I had in my data that I thought was unsolvable. She is an enormous asset, and, you know, my team is enriched by her. So, you know, I think if we welcome the people who are different from us, we only stand to gain. Hmm. Now, I have one question. This is a harder question, I think, because it's one that I've wrestled with, and I, and I bet that a lot of people listening to us are going to wrestle with this, too. And it's basically something like this, you know, so, so John and Arthur are talking about reconciliation and about love and about solidarity and about finding commonality. And that's great. 
But there are people out there that deserve to be treated with contempt. There are racists and xenophobes, and and they should be treated with contempt. They should be what in, in on college campuses they call deplatform. They shouldn't be listened to. They they deserve nothing but the worst kind of disdain. What's wrong with that argument, John? I think the First Amendment is what's wrong with that argument because. The First Amendment of the Constitution guarantees people the right to be heard, even if their points of view are offensive to us. And I think what we need is dialogue. When I was leaving MIT, you know, I had a cab driver who said, what's wrong with this country of black people and they're, they're stupid and inferior? And I said to him, you know, I just left MIT and my best friend was from Nigeria and he was a theoretical physicist. And he was 10 times as smart as I am. And he was black and much more educated than you are. So I try to keep an open mind and not make up your mind too quickly. The First Amendment guarantees everybody in this country the right to be heard, even if we find their ideas repulsive. And dialogue is what enriches us. Okay, so if the right thing to do for a strong country is to listen to people even when we believe that their views are noxious, let's layer in another point that you made earlier, which is that contempt is actually bad for the contemptor. And so if we need to listen to others because it's the right thing to do, and that listening without contempt is good for us, it seems to me that what you're talking about is the, the treatment that we would give to others that we like is the same treatment we should give to others even if we don't like them, right? That's right. Absolutely. It is. I mean, you know, I think if we just understand the life of Jesus Christ, we can understand that he didn't affiliate with the rich and powerful. He affiliated with the people who were outcasts, and he found the beauty in them. And all of us have that kind of beauty. And if we listen, if we respect people who disagree with us, then we can find common ground. And we all need that. Of course, we have our own concerns and our fears. And, but dialogue is what really makes this country great. And cooperation is what's going to lead us forward, not an us versus them attitude. So speaking of dialogue, John, um, I see in my data that people are ghettoizing themselves with respect to politics in ways that we haven't seen in a very long time, certainly since we've been keeping data. Perhaps it has happened in the past, but since we've been, we've been looking at how people dialogue with each other, we're seeing lower levels of it that at any time in decades, certainly in my lifetime. And what we see is that if you watch Fox News, you only watch Fox News. If you watch MSNBC, you only watch MSNBC and listen to NPR. What can you tell people who are reluctant to get outside their media bubble about how they can benefit themselves and make a better world? Yeah, I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. It's really true, you know, that we listen to the views that support our point of view, but we don't grow that way. And you're right about Americans isolating themselves. Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, really made that point. We don't trust other people. And I think we have to make the leap to assume that those TV stations like Fox News or MSNBC who are 
really opposite in our point of view have something to say. And we're going to learn the most from people who disagree with us and learn the least from people who agree with us. We're just going to reinforce our biases and our prejudices. So we should read widely and we should talk to people who are very different from us and make the assumption that they mean well, that their intentions are honorable, that they're just as American as we are, just as loving as we are, just as smart as we are, and we have something to learn from them, even if they're very different from us. So I think you're right. Ghettoizing ourselves is harmful. And it gives us permission to have less empathy for people who are different from us. And that is really dangerous. I, I love where we are in this conversation right now because, you know, my admiration for you is is uh, unalloyed in the way that you've brought people back together um, because I believe that love is the basis of a, of a happy and good society and marriage is the basis of a stable society. Um, and you've been able to take the ideas that you have discovered and that you've shared with the whole world and propose how we could use them to come together as a country. And so, John, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to see if you would agree, based on our conversation, with what I'm going to call Gottman's Four Rules for a Better America. Are you willing to, to, to let me give that a try? Okay, yeah, I will. You know, I, I don't tend to think so big, Arthur. You know, I tend to think in my small domain in which I've done research. But let's give it a try. Okay, so... Gottman's Four Rules for a Better America. These are the things that all of our listeners can do to stitch America back together while still maintaining our points of view. Number one is focus on other people's distress and focus on it empathetically. That makes sense? Yes, makes total sense. Number two is we have lots of interactions on social media and around the dinner table and with strangers and friends. But make an effort to have your positive versus your negative comments and interactions be at a ratio of five to one. You have power to do this. So the positive things that you say versus the criticisms that you level with everybody should be at about a five to one ratio at least. And by the way, you know, for people who are tweeting all day and, and, and participating on Facebook, that means five positive and affirming and praising and loving tweets for every bit of, every bit of criticism. Okay? Right. <laughs> Rule number three is you must avoid contempt with everybody all the time. No exceptions. Whether you think that they're... Their point of view is terrible, even axiomatically contemptible. It's bad for you and bad for the country if you treat anybody with contempt, correct? Correct. That was, that's the one variable that was basically zero among the masters. They just did not do contempt at all. Huh. And finally, rule number four is that you need to learn to cooperate and have dialogue with those with whom you disagree. The only way you can do that is to seek out and be around people who are different than you are and cooperate with them, listen to them, treat them with empathy. Is that right? Yeah. Can I add one thing to that last uh, number four? Yeah. Before you speak, see if you understand what the previous speaker has said. So see if you understand what they've said before you think up your next you know, clever response. Right. And, you know, so when you're listening, don't listen to rebut. First, listen to understand and then frame your rebuttal. 
John, if the whole country did these things that you're talking about, I sort of feel that there are whole media organizations that might go out of business. You realize that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Arthur. I, you know, that I think those four rules would really make make this a better country. Let's see what we can do to create a movement based on John Gottman's four rules for a better America. John Gottman, what an honor it's been to be with you today. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Arthur. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Our team at AEI is CeCe Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, our producer is Gautam Shrikashan, who also composed our theme music. Golda Arthur is senior producer. And Nishath Kurwa is executive producer of audio. Now, if you want to get in touch, here's how. On Twitter, I'm at Arthur Brooks. And on email, arthurbrookshow at voxmedia.com. We need you to rate and review the podcast, whether you like it or not. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And tell your friends to subscribe too, especially your friends that you disagree with, because that's what this program is all about. Thanks for listening. For 70 years, the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trust has researched the data and the facts that promote civil conversation and lead to innovative policy solutions. Now, it's providing some of that civil dialogue in a podcast called After the Fact. In each episode, Pew shares a surprising stat and a story that help illuminate the issues that matter. Listen at pewtrust.org slash after the fact, or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your favorite programs. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. 